Come on in, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, the founder and CEO of Ezra Group Consulting. Over the past 16 years, we've worked with hundreds of fintech vendors and enterprise wealth management firms to guide them towards making better business and technology decisions. In fact, February of next year will be our 17th year in business. If your company has a software product that you're selling to, asset managers, broker dealers, or RIAs, or other firms, go to our website, ezragroupllc.com, and fill out the Contact Us form. Our Wealth Tech Research team will reach out to you because we can deliver a wide range of market insights for your firm, including competitive analysis, partnership analysis, addressable and obtainable market estimates, sales targeting, and insights on buying decisions, and more. Every Wealth Tech vendor needs this data to be successful, especially when entering new markets. And you can start the process off by going to EzraGroupLLC.com. All right. The Wealth Tech Today podcast features interviews, news, and analysis on the trends and best practices in technology for wealth management, asset management, and related areas. our year-end best of episode of the Wolf Tech Today podcast. Our team pulled clips from the most popular interviews from 2021, and we have six of them to share with you with Lori Hardwick, April Rudin, Julie Littlechild, Aaron Klein, Jason Broder, and Jeff Schwantz. So the first up is the most downloaded episode of 2021, and it is, drumroll please, Lori Hardwick. Lori's a legend in the wealth management industry. Uh, she's one of the co-founders of InvestNet someone I count as a good friend as well. And she's now a consultant and VC advising some of the biggest wealth techs and broker dealers in the space. Her episode was episode 86, Behind the Scenes of the Cetera Voya Deal. She gave us a lot of good information since she had a, a, a front row seat to that acquisition since she's on the board of Cetera. In the episode, she talks about enterprise tools and how she's seeing that market change, how consolidation in, in the industry begets disruption and some of the disruptions she has seen. And in this clip, Lori talks about the trend of insurance companies selling off their broker-dealer divisions, what's behind it, and will it continue? How do you see this as part of a trend of insurance companies, which 20 years ago seemed to be swarming into the IBD space as you know, do cross-selling products, and now are sort of backing out, like MetLife sold their business and you know, here's I, you know, ING sold theirs, and then you know, here's a uh, Voya selling theirs. What, yeah. what what is that trend, and why do you what do you think is driving that? Well, I think you know it's a great question, Craig. I think that a lot of firms, you know, realize that they have assets as part of their, you know. Uh, total package within, you know, these insurance companies and banking companies. And, and, you know, um, you could add to that list, BMO Harris sold their, um, you know, broker dealer as well. So I think that as they look at the multiples they can get for some of these divisions within their larger entity, it's hard to say no. It's it's easy to kind of say, what could we get for that asset? And where, where are we today? Um, I also think that the changing risk met metrics on these businesses definitely play into that discussion. 
as to whether or not, you know, with the new, um, uh, you know, change in p political sides here, I know that there's a lot of um, expectation that there'll be more potentially um, rigid rules, regulations that are put in place against our industry. And I think some of them are like, hey, if we can get that money for it and we don't have to take on more risk or worry about, you know, getting penalized for X, Y, Z, who knows what it'll be, um, we'll, we'll dump the assets. So, you know, people, firms like Cetera and certainly Genstar at that level, at the private equity level, we see a lot of value there because we are already a well-oiled engine um, inside Cetera. So we know that when we bring on this number of advisors and these number of assets that we're going to be able to help them run better, faster, stronger and more efficiently, which is the most important part. <laughs> All those things are important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, building them into the scale of the bigger engine is, you know, we have we have that on our side right now at Cetera. We're, we're a big engine and it's well-oiled. We're ready to and roll. Scale, scale is really becoming the name of the game. If you look at the, all the competitors, at the, you know, the top broker dealers are getting bigger and bigger, whether it's LPL at 17,000 advisors, Advisor Group, I think, is, is over 10,000 advisors. And mm -hmm. now uh, Satara is approaching 10,000. You're at 9,000 mm -hmm. now. And that mm -hmm. there's some who said that's the that's a key threshold for going for uh, going public. Uh, do you see that as is that, you know, is that something you think Satara's goal, one of their goals is to go public? You know, that's not on our radar right now. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't rule anything out. Uh, but that is not on our radar right now. Our radar is pretty clear as to what our directives are and how to continue to grow the business um, under GenStar's umbrella. Hmm. There's been a, a raft, raft. There's been a lot of, of PE firms moving in and, 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 and acquiring broker-dealers or acquiring parts of broker-dealers. What is it about the broker-dealer business model that, that PE firms see so attractive? Well, you know, I think that you would see two sides of the coin here. In the private equity world, there's some that actually do not believe in the private in the broker dealer um, world and the ability to continue to grow a BD um, because there's a lot of metrics out there showing that uh, RIAs are kind of the wave of the future and that that's the way mm -hmm. the puck is moving. So I think that when um, Whenever someone's looking at a broker dealer, obviously they're looking at scale. They're looking at the stability of that firm, of course, but they're also looking for how to either stop the attrition out into RIA world or into other firms, or they're looking for ways to grab market share outside of where they currently are. So you don't buy a, a firm just to kind of keep it as is. It's always, it's always to grow. And yes. to fortify with that with something else. So um, I think that a lot of the firms see broker dealers as, you know, these firms that haven't had a lot of resources in the past, or maybe they haven't been able to put a lot more money into the infrastructure of the firm to make them run cleaner and faster. Um, I know that, you know, the way that technology has has changed everything, like um, Jiffy AI, for example, uh, run by Babu Sivadasan, who is a longtime friend, and we worked together at a Vestnap for 15 years. Um, he 
just started a firm called Jiffy AI. And those, there's a bunch, there's like two or three new firms like that that are doing business process automation at the home office level. And that is where I think these private equity firms, as they think about getting into these large institution BD businesses, say, how do we streamline it and make it faster and be able to um, continue to obviously thrill and delight the advisors and their clients, but also run faster on the back end and more efficiently. And so scale just can't be scale anymore. It has to actually reduce your cost to serve eventually. Um, so you can't be touching every piece of data like you, we used to be able to. Um, but now that these new, you know, these new technologies have come out, it's allowed you to build in a lot more efficiencies and be able to do work, not just faster, but at way less expense than it used to cost. Next up is my interview with April Rudin, founder and president of the Rudin Group. April is widely acknowledged as a top marketing strategist for the financial services and wealth management sectors. She's the number one social media influencer in wealth management, ranked by On Analytica, and my longtime friend. Uh, her episode number 90, How Merrill Lynch Drives Digital Adoption. In that episode, she talks about the new digital thundering herd, her thoughts on hyper-personalization. And in this clip, April talks about some of the resistance some firms see to digital adoption, what are the root causes of it, and how firms can overcome it. But yeah, but everyone's different. Everyone approaches their, their lives different. Everyone approaches their wealth different. Uh, everyone approaches the use of technology differently. And one thing you mentioned in your article uh, was resistance to digital adoption. Can you, can you talk about that and like how, how you're overcoming that? That's the opposite of which ones are doing the best, which, which ones are resisting it and how to overcome that. So I think that um, the resistance to digital adoption really has come from the financial advisory world, right? And come from the enterprise firms rather than from the end users. Um, in this article, we really explore that it was the clients pushing up on the firms to really gain access to their accounts online because they wanted to have real-time information. And I think the pandemic really drove a lot of that also um, with, you know, in terms of adoptions. It's unfortunate, right, that of course the pandemic has been so awful and a tragedy for so many people around the world, but you know, it took a pandemic to actually drive digital adoption and for firms to actually um, get over their security concerns, get over some of the concerns that they might have in terms of digital and really just embrace it because there was no other alternative. So, you know, you could be just as, you know, unsecure as people say, you like, you can have a bunch of files and leave them in a taxi, right? You could have, you know, files can come, you know, from all over. But I think now that we've taken this big, strong leap to digital, I don't think there's ever going to be any going back. So even those financial advisors and firms that, you know, believe that it's a relationship business, which of course it is, um, they can just think about digital as freeing them up from routine and repetitive tasks, so they have more time to build relationships. So I think the resistance has really been on, on the part of the industry, right? Not on the part of clients. Your article is something we've been talking about for a while. It's how Merrill Lynch seems to be leading the industry and they're one of the largest firms that's a wirehouse. And usually the largest firms tend to be slower and sluggish and can't innovate. You have Merrill with their Merrill One product, 
uh, and other other uh, technology first initiatives seems to be doing the opposite. Do you have any insight into how they're doing that and how they're they're beating what what's called the innovative the innovators dilemma? Yeah, so I think that uh, Merrill embraces that opportunity, which is multiple entry points, Merrill Edge, Merrill One. Um, they have uh, something that they announced last year called the, I think it's called the Client Experience, the Customer Experience Workstation. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they're thinking about it from a more client-centric point of view, which is what needs to happen instead of from the advisor point of view. And I think that that's been a real sea change. And all of that is led by Kabir Sethi. So under, under him and his teams, he's been um, you know, really a leader in recognizing that it's all about the client and it's not so much about the advisor, right? Um, and so everything they do is more about serving clients better, developing stickier relationships and hyper-personalizing as much as they can their offerings to clients rather than going with the one size fits all. Um, so I think some people, some firms are still stuck in that. And But I think you're right, Merrill's done a great job of breaking that down So with the multiple entry points. Moving right along, the next clip is from my interview with Julie Littlechild, founder and CEO of Absolute Engagement. Julie is a recognized expert on the drivers and evolution of client experience, client engagement, and referral growth for financial advisors, which makes her the perfect person to talk about her episode focusing on the voice of the client. Some of the topics she covered were moving your data out of the silos where it's uh, hidden and stored, asking the right questions to get to the right answers, why client satisfaction isn't enough, and in this clip, how do you define client experience? This episode is part of our, our September uh, topic, which is client experience. That's what we're focusing on. And we're talking a lot about that. So kind of rolling it back a bit before we just jump in, just what is your definition of client experience? I mean, it's a great question because we talk about it so much. And and to some extent, it, it reminds me of practice management, right? It was everything. Um, and to some extent, I think client experience is, is a catch-all for all that we do for our clients. So we think of it as incorporating the service we provide, how we deliver what we deliver, everything from, uh, you know, how a meeting is booked, how a review is held, uh, what the communications process is, just everything to do with service. It is also about the offer provided, the scope of the offer. And, And I think increasingly, you know, we tend to focus on not just, um, the experience itself, but what are advisors and what are firms doing to support deeper engagement uh, with their clients, which I think is part of client experience, but maybe goes a little deeper. So I want to talk about deeper engagement and deeper conversations. So I'm going to skip over the, the second question. What kind of client input do you recommend or have you gathered or helped advisors gather that, that drives those deeper conversations? Yeah, we've, it's interesting because, you know, our focus is broadly on gathering input and and input can work in a business in a very strategic way. It can help you 
understand the offer that you should deliver, the needs of clients, you know, that how often you should meet all of those things. But I've been really interested in this question that you asked, which is, is more about how do you drive a deeper conversation? And um, the way that I think about it is, is this, that when we're at a deep conversation needs to reflect what is on the mind of the client in the moment. What, what are they concerned about? What are they inspired by? Uh, what, what's their level of confidence? Uh, all of that in my mind informs the best possible conversation, but those things are really fluid. Right. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me, but I feel different right this moment than I did yesterday at this time. Right. The, things change. The context changes. And so I think that this has really raised kind of an interesting challenge for advisors is how do I how do I gather data from my clients that is in the moment and can support a deeper conversation? So uh, so we've been focusing a lot of attention on what. What information can I gather, for example, uh, that allows me to co-create the review agenda so that as an advisor, I'm not just focused on the 10 things I had on my standard agenda. I'm actually focused on where's my client at? How are they feeling? What's going on? What are they concerned about? And using that to change the conversation. Hey, I want to take a break from this episode to talk about our sponsor. The Invest in Others Charitable Foundation is a nonprofit that recognizes financial advisors for their exceptional charitable work. Their 15th annual Invest in Others Awards will be held digitally this year from September 20th through September 23rd. That's just eight days from now. Be sure to tune in each day at 4.45 p.m. Eastern time to watch as each award category winner is unveiled. You can watch on investinothers.org forward slash awards and there's no logins or passwords required. Now, I've been involved with Invest in Others for three, no, four years now. It's a great organization. They do a lot of good. Uh, please donate on the website, investinothers.org. I'm sure your company will match your donations. And almost every wealth management company that I know of is involved in Invest in Others. They do a, a, some fantastic work. Each finalist in the Invest in Others Awards receives a donation of $20,000, and the winners in each category, and I believe there are five categories, receive between $50,000 and $75,000 towards their nonprofit. And these are life-changing amounts for some of these organizations. And I've been uh, lucky enough to be part of the judging on some of these categories. And they're, uh, the, the categories are things like local community involvement, uh, international charitable work, um, uh, you know, uh, lifetime achievement awards, uh, things like that. So uh, they, they break it out in different ways, and it's really tough to, to pick the winners because there's so many good charities that are doing such good work, building schools, getting um, helping feed people, building orphanages overseas, uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, makes me feel really inadequate. I really got to step up my, my volunteer game, but investinothers.org is a great uh, organization, great charity. You should check them out at their website. And uh, you don't want to miss their awards this year. And please tune in on their website, investinothers.org forward slash awards to find out who wins. I don't know who's going to win. We need to learn. We need to know. We want to know who the winners are. So check them out. All right. We're halfway through our best of 2021 episode. Next clip is from my interview with Aaron Klein. 
co-founder and CEO of Riskalyze. Uh, Aaron founded Riskalyze with his partners in 2011 and led them through some incredible growth to become the number one vendor of risk analysis software. And he's also a, a very good friend of mine. And please check out my long form interview with him. You can hear that one, which is separate from this particular interview. Uh, go to our blog, wolftechtoday.com and enter Aaron Klein into the search bar. Now, this episode was from this year and uh, Aaron was talking about the GameStop debacle and Robinhood. So in this episode, uh, it talks about Robinhood driving disruption, how to destroy a multi-billion dollar brand in 24 hours or less, more regulation protecting incumbents. And in this clip, uh, Aaron talks about how the Reddit group Wall Street Bets is a crowdsourced hedge fund. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the Wall Street Bets guys. And, and one yeah. of the things about their, their model was that they, if you, if you read the Wall Street Bets forum, you know, before all this happened, they, they do a lot of fundamental analysis. They do a lot of reviews and research on these companies to find their targets. And they're, it's very similar to how a hedge fund works. Like they look for opportunities to make money mm -hmm. to arbitrage and to find either, you know, like a crowdsourced more, hedge fund. Yeah, it's, it's like a crowdsourced hedge fund, but people want to say, oh, this is terrible yeah. that these guys are doing this, but it's just, it's exactly the same as, you know, rich uh, hedge fund guys in the Hamptons at a party saying, oh, this is what we're doing. You want to get in on it where they're, they're just doing out in the open. Totally. Completely transparent. At just that, just that tremendous scale at tremendous scale. And, you know, I, I, I look, I think that's a very, very great point. Um, and, and that's why, man, now you think about like the political leaders who chimed in on this. Um, I, I actually think, and warning, I, I don't political know discussion, really warning, warning, danger, Robinson, <laughs> danger. Well, but, but like the, the, the strange bedfellows that this created, right? Like, I don't know if I've ever agreed with AOC on anything. And yet she comes out and says, there's something wrong when, you know, this brokerage firm comes in and says, you can't buy, um, you know, more of this security. You're taking sides on a trade in effect, right? And, and you know, and, and, and then she's, on, you know, in the, same, in the same boat as Ted Cruz. Um, I, I tend to look at the world that way. I think that, you know, it really kind of like, I just had to laugh at like Elizabeth Warren, you know, parachuting in and going, oh my goodness, like people are making money. We must stop this. Uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> her, her approach of like, we, we, this can't be right. There should be, you know, the market values have to reflect the underlying fundamentals of the companies that they represent or something is wrong. And, and this is manipulation. Well, I mean, I, that's not what the stock market is. That's not what the stock market is at all. And, and I, you know, thanks to her, there's some hedge fund guys who probably are not going to have to sell their second yachts. So she, you know, like, congratulations, Elizabeth Warren, you saved some yachts. Um, but, but I, I don't know. I just, I look at that and I go, it, it, it also just speaks to where we're at as a country. And I don't, I don't mean to sound pessimistic. Like I, I, I I'm an optimist at heart, but like, man, we got to do something about the fact that politicians don't actually know a whole heck of a lot about what they claim, um, you know, to, 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 to be experts in. Um, I was talking with um, a friend of mine who worked for years in the, um, you know, in the Chicago option pits. Um, and he's like, you know, man, I, I would go like, like sit and talk to different congressional committees in Washington, D.C., talking about, you know, representing, you know, the, the CME and, and, and some of the different options traders in Chicago. And he goes, the people who get appointed to these committees just happen to represent New York and Chicago. 
because the exchanges are in New York and Chicago. They don't actually have any expertise um, necessarily in understanding what what the heck it is that they are supposedly regulating. And um, it's it's a it's a fascinating problem. It's one that you know I think our our, our country has uh, worked through for a while, but it's 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 not quite solved yet. But it sure needs to be. Yeah, you brought up another thing that that bothered me for a long time was with with the CFTC, and you know, these were guys who were regulating agricultural products, and someone had the idea: let's give them <laughs> commodity derivatives because commodities are agricultural products. Let's just put them together. And you're thinking, well, what do they have to do with each other? Why would you give these people this 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 gigantic market? Now they've right. got incredible control. They need, as you said, they don't really understand what they're what they are um, regulating. Right. And if, if you remember the the Facebook hearings, there's a years slight ago. difference between yeah, there's a slight difference between hog futures and actually taking delivery of a lot of hogs. <laughs> right. Um, but hog there you go. <laughs> is, is not an easy process, but it's very different from from trading fu hog futures or or trading cattle futures, if you know what I mean. That's absolutely right. But the, yeah, yeah. Some, some of the victims yeah. here, some of the victims here in, in this GameStop, you know, just don't look good. Like Gabe Plotkin, who is the, 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 the manager of Melvin, who owns, who co-founded Melvin Capital and suffered that 53% right. loss, which was 4.5 billion in value, was in the middle of upgrading his yep. $44 million Miami beach house. And might have to stop that expansion. <laughs> so you know, these people just don't look. I mean, I mean, I, I, I wonder if he's going to make a campaign contribution to Elizabeth Warren next year. You just never know. You never know because she may have saved that Miami Beach without house, without going down the know? political um, rat hole too quickly. But if, if you just Google, you know, who gets the most uh, Wall Street hedge fund money, you'll be surprised as as which as which candidates get that right. But um, yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating world. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, look, that's the thing is that if if we if we do this right in the markets, there's nobody putting their finger on the scale and like tilting the game uh, one way or the other. And the Wall Street bets guys have just as much right to be in the markets as Melvin Capital does. And Melvin Capital is just as much right to be in the markets as Wall Street bets does. And um, you know, for markets to work, there have to be winners and losers. That's how markets work. And so, um, you know, you you uh, you look at that and you go um, to again to to be in a position where we change the rules of the game um, and 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 effectively you know turn off one side of the trade. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. You know, we've talked about it about Robinhood, but frankly, it's not a good look for DTC. It's not a good look for any of the prime brokers. It's not a good look for any of the firms, the intermediaries, uh, the market makers, the exchangers. It's not a good look for anybody because, you know, why markets need to have consistent rules um, to operate well. And if the rules are changing in the middle of the game, that's a problem. This clip is from my interview with Jason Broder, CEO of Simon Markets. And Jason's clip, Jason's episode was the second most downloaded episode in 2021. So here he is. Uh, Jason's a longtime uh, member of uh, Goldman Sachs, coming out of MIT, right into the uh, the investment bank. He eventually reached the managing director level before taking over the CEO role at Simon Markets when they spun it off in 2018. Jason also oversaw the recent capital raise of over $100 million uh, in July of this year for Simon Markets. In our full episode, which is 102, The Rise of Alternate Marketplaces, Jason talks about the increased interest they're seeing in alternatives from advisors, 
some of the competitors in his space and the differentiation his firm is offering. And in this clip, he talks about trends in alternative marketplaces. So we've seen a lot of trends around marketplaces. Uh, my company, Ezra Group, we, we have a research uh, division and we've been doing a fair amount of research in different marketplaces, not just structured products, but annuities and other insurance, um, as well as you know, credit and lending. And there's, there's, there's lots of different marketplaces coming out. So what are some trends that you're seeing and how is Simon adjusting to those trends? So financial advisors are looking for ways to differentiate the value they add to their clients. I think we are on the precipice of the largest wealth transfer in history. And I think the playbooks for the next five, 10, 20 years in the financial advice business will most likely be different than the playbooks for the last 10, 20, 30 years. I think a part of that is breaking away from the 60, 40 portfolio and really helping investors understand using technology, what else is out there that can better help them achieve their goals? Maybe the answer is 60-40 is right for a particular investor, but having access and tools for not only the financial advisor, but that they can then share with the end clients to really showcase the value they bring to the relationship. And this is above and beyond, obviously, the trust that they've built over years. I think it's very important. And I think that's where Simon's focused to really take these complex products or alternative solutions, if you will, and provide tools to the financial advisors to help them not only educate themselves and their clients, analyze these products within the portfolio, and ultimately track them if they do purchase them for their clients and understand, are they up? Are they down? Why? If it's an annuity contract, do I need to service it? If it's a structured investment, what are the life cycle components? And how do I need to be thoughtful about conversations that I have upcoming with the client and how they may want to adjust the portfolio using these products. Okay, Jason, I'm going to put you on the spot, but when it comes to the marketplaces, where do you see the puck going? So obviously you've got a very strong foothold when it comes to risk managed and structured products, but what's the next step for, for Simon and where do you see yourself going and why? Yeah, we view Simon as being the go-to marketplace for all alternative solutions. And that's risk managed solutions, it's private investments, it's digital assets. To your point about the swivel chair earlier, what we really wanna do for the financial advisor community is have them have one marketplace integrated within their existing ecosystem and also working with partners in the wealth management space. And we have a lot of them and they're fantastic. But what we've done is, and we've been fortunate, we've focused on the complex asset classes for the last eight years. And so the way we think about modeling them from a data architecture standpoint, which is key, and once you have standardized data, you can, for the first time, build consistent analytics and services on top of that. And when you power that, combined with very elegant user experience and UI, you can illustrate how these products should be used or how to think about these products in ways that it just hasn't been done before. And so we view that as a massive opportunity set for the entire U.S. wealth management industry. And we want to be at the forefront of it. Okay, you said something that piqued my interest. Just You mentioned data. Can you talk about how you are either gathering data, your data model, your data architecture, infrastructure that enables you to your, your, the data 
uh, having consistent, uh, having the data standardized enables you to build consistent analytics. Can you talk about why that's a, why it was a problem before to get standardized data and how you approached and solved that problem? Absolutely. Think about the world of structured investments before Simon. If you took five different issuers, issuers A, B, C, D, and E, the way that they would model the same exact payout market link growth note in their risk management systems was different. One issuer would call it a 20% buffer. Another would call it an 80% buffer. The way they thought about digital coupons and how they struck them versus at the money or in the money was different. And that's the data, let alone the nomenclature was different at each of my five issuers in the example. What we did as part of Simon when we spun out is we created what we call the Simon product schema. And so what we've been able to do is work hand in hand with all of our issuer partners and standardize the data structure of the structured investment product set. And so we're now connected with all of the 19 structured investment issuers on our platform via API. And when they put the data on Simon, it all maps to a consistent product schema. So now we have a database of about 65,000 structured investments on our platform that are all in a consistent and standardized data format, regardless of the payout, it could be vanilla or very bespoke. And so having that unique data set was key because you can't build consistent analytics like back testing or post-trade performance analysis or understanding how these fit in a portfolio if you're first trying to wrestle with standardizing data across different payouts and different issuers. And so we have fantastic issuer partners. We've been very fortunate for everybody to really get together and drive the standardization, but it's been key. And on the distribution side, our clients love it because it makes their lives so much easier between standardized data and analytics that are now, you can run real time and, and extremely scalable and also consistent nomenclature across the product names. It's been game-changing and, you know, I, it's a big feather in the cap of, in, in this example, the structure and investment industry and all the stakeholders who have been uh, tremendous in, in helping do this. And finally, batting cleanup on this episode, Jeff Schwantz from Morningstar. Um, Jeff is the general manager, global head of advisor client experience at Morningstar. His episode 110, how the risk ecosystem helps clients invest differently. Jeff is an industry veteran. He spent six years at Pershing. He spent some time at eMoney Advisor in between two separate stints at Morningstar, where he is now. In the full episode, which you can listen to on our uh, blog or podcast, he talks about Morningstar's software empire, how he makes build versus buy decisions, and some tips and recommendations for how to improve those, some of the trends in the usage of risk software that he's seeing, and in this clip, why risk IQ is a better metric than risk tolerance. How did you guys make the build versus buy decision to acquire Plan Plus Global and Finometrica? Obviously, you've got a very strong bench of software development, uh, building out your own, your own systems, and you started building out Goldbridge, your own financial planning tool. What was that impetus to, to make the, to, you know, pull the trigger on that rather than building it yourself? Sure. You know, what's kind of fun in the fintech space, Craig, is um, we can all build really amazing tools right now. But think about at the end of the day, you know, Morningstar, we're a data company and we're a research company. Um, and then we expose that to software. And what's really hard to replicate, Greg, is 20 years of history and academically validated, you know, validated research 
um, that's really, really hard to replicate in the fintech space. And part of the acquisition of Plan Plus Global, they did some things uh, on the advanced financial planning side that uh, was going to take us a bit to get there. Um, so it helped us accelerate that. And how do we start to take it out of what were those, those legacy products and make, again, make it available into all of our enterprise software solutions. But what's really interesting about the acquisition, uh, th that acquisition was the acquisition of the IP and the 20 years of academically validated research of understanding the risk IQ of individuals. And that's the part that's really hard to replicate for any FinTech. Any FinTech starts today, they create a new UI, they don't have that history to be able to have that research validated through and through. And that's a part, that's a really meaningful part of, uh, of the acquisition. So it's not just the software, it's really the research and the history. Got it. So when you mentioned this before, risk IQ, can you explain how uh, individual risk tolerance is different from risk IQ or how risk IQ is better than the, the way firms are doing risk tolerance today? Sure. Um, so it, people understand, typically, um, if you understand a person's and individual's IQ over their life, their IQ really doesn't change meaningfully over a period of, you know, over their life. Um, it's, it's innate. Um, it's a psychometric trait that you have. It's something that is in each individual being. And your tolerance for risk is similar. And this is really important. So if risk tolerance, Craig, is done well, um, it is going to measure and it should not, it should measure that person's, their, their psychological trait, um, their tradedness of their appetite for risk. And that does not change over their life. And, and some of the things that we see today, they don't, it doesn't have that consistency to be able to understand and measure and um, quite frankly, if your risk tolerance, some of the questions that we ask uh, advisors and enterprises is if your risk tolerance is actually changing, if markets get a bit choppy, you're probably not actually measuring risk, risk tolerance because your risk tolerance, again, it's a trait of yourself. It's not going to change regardless of, the you know, of that. And that is a, that's, a, that's a part of the education that we're trying to do to help people understand it. So, you know, your tradedness, your IQ does not change over a lifetime. Um, how you may react to things, that's a different measure. So we're just trying to get people back to basics, Craig, of like, what is risk tolerance and how does it change or not change over an individual's life? And let's start there. I would think a lot of things change over people's lives and how they react or interact with the markets or any part of their life, especially finances as they get older, you know, when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, you may be very different in how you interact with finance and interact with the market than when you're 40, 50, 60. Correct. But, but that's the point is it, it's your tolerance for risk as a human does not change over your lifetime. But what happens is market events, things like your risk composure, well, that's actually something else. So that's where, again, as an industry, we have conflated topics, unfortunately, um, that we're bringing these things together and the actual measure of risk tolerance, if done correctly, and if measured correctly, that tolerance does not change over a person's lifestyle or, 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 or as market events change in, in that. And that's what we're trying to make sure that uh, individuals, advisors, clients really understand is that if done correctly, that doesn't change. Everything else and how we, we may shift around composure, um, their risk capacity to be able to take on additional risk or reduce risk to achieve their goals, but the core of that risk tolerance, if done correctly, does not change over a person's life. And, and that's where we see it, again, a, a, a 
significant opportunity in the market to help better serve investors. Having advisors understand that nature, being able to explain that to the end consumer, and then how do we start to parlay that into how does it impact their financial goals? And then you can link into Goldbridge. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. It's linking it to uh, Goldbridge or any of our financial planning capabilities. Yeah, I remember when you first announced that, I thought it was a really good idea considering you have a lot of the tools. It was that, that seemed to be a big gap between your portfolio analytics software and, and data and Morningstar Office, your implementation, portfolio management tools. There was that gap in between that Goldbridge seemed to fill and now the risk ecosystem even fills even further. Yep, exactly. It just fills it in. So you think about, it's all about planning to action to your point, Craig. It's, it's let's understand it. Let's understand the trade-offs. And then when, when we agree on here's the, the next best action to take, what do we do? So how do we put it into a portfolio? How do we then, you know, uh, uh, put that portfolio into action, fund it, be traded, everything else that, uh, that, that exists that we all know uh, takes place next. Your software is used by so many advisors. I think the numbers I saw were advisor workstation has something like 150,000 users. So how do you see the risk ecosystem? What would be a success in terms of adoption rate of your current user base? Yeah, um, so in North America, so we've got actually north of 185,000 member subscribers today. Um, and- I mean, I was shortchanging you first... with only 150,000? <laughs> No, just uh, wanted to make a point of clarification. We're a public company, so uh, we always want to make sure that the facts align to um, what we what we communicate. Uh, Jeff, I, uh, Jeff, I appreciate street. you being precise. So, uh, hey, it's important. And um, but the the what was interesting, Craig, is when we launched it within two weeks, we had uh, north of thirty two thousand member subscribers start to already engage, you know, with the Morningstar Risk ecosystem and just the elements. Um, uh, one element of that was just the portfolio risk store, literally running it through and um, uh, understanding what are the, what's, the, what's the risk score of the portfolios. When we were communicating with advisors in the very beginning, um, advisors were really excited to have effectively a Morningstar rating for their portfolio. They would sit down with their clients and say, hey, you know, Craig, this is the portfolio I built for you. And um, uh, this is the Morningstar risk score that uh, that when we ran your portfolio that I built for you custom. Um, here's a here's a point of view. And advisors were really excited to be able to take you know what had always been the star rating or the analyst rating, and now they could have something that they built and they touched for their for their consumer, and they could put it in the context again of person the personalization that they wanted to do to the end uh, household that they serve. Super excited about it. Um, I mean, ideally, we'd love to see you know, and we would expect. To, uh, to reach almost all of that 185,000 member subscribers that we have today, um, you know, with uh, using the, the Morningstar Risk Ecosystem. So now we are, uh, we are almost two months in and we are getting, you know, large adoption, but it's also, what, what, where else can we bring it back to the, um, we're, we're launching it, um, we're bringing it to Australia, we're bringing it to India. Now that we've got uh, the fundamentals built and we've got the processes running, so it's not just relegated to North America, which is our largest footprint, but it's also bringing this and making it globally uh, as well. So um, high adoption expectations, Craig, is, uh, is, is the short answer. And that wraps things up for this best of episode and wraps us up for 2021. Please go to our website, ezragroupllc.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up for our newsletter. 
Once a month, you'll get an email chock full of wealth management industry goodness, articles, news, trends, links. You will not be disappointed. I just want to say to all of our listeners out there, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for making us one of the best wealth management industry podcasts out there. And I'll talk to you all again in 2022.